0: Good morning. So that was rather quick.
1: <laughs> so fast. Excited this morning, are we? Oh. Right? Well, no, I'm a little chilled. I had to take off my sweater, listeners. We found it was making a little noise on the mic. So here I am this morning in my t shirt with shorts and everything else. <laughs>
0: We'll leave it at that. Let's move quickly. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so in, in a recent conversation you had with a mutual friend of ours, uh, he had sent me the the recording of that conversation. And you, you mentioned on it unconscious competence. And I, I thought it was kind of fascinating. Maybe you've mentioned that with in a conversation of ours in the past. But if you did, it totally went over my head. And in this conversation, <laughs> it, was, it was very, very relevant to the conversation. But I thought it was, it was an interesting topic to talk about you know, we can go into just start, start with maybe a broad overview and then dive into further, like how you came upon that. I understand it's a a term in psychology, but again, it's, it's new to me. So we can just kind of start there before we dive into the context of that conversation, maybe just in general, you know, what, what is uh, unconscious competence and and how did you stumble upon that?
1: Well, um, so let me change our course just a little bit. I think If I was a listener, I'd go, why why even talk about this?
0: Sure.
1: And uh, so we'll start with why to steal a cue from our good friend. Not our good friend, but someone we admire. Simon Sinek. if you haven't listened to that talk, go watch that talk, TED Talks, a good one. Start with why. Uh, The reason we start with why, Pat, is that everyone is unconsciously competent in many things. And uh, one of the things that uh, we'll we'll get toward uh, later on this morning, is we're, we're trying to uh, help Christians today become, become unconsciously competent in ways that traditions were before the Enlightenment, and those are few and far between today. So the reason we talk about why is that everybody is unconsciously competent in some things, uh, walking would be an example. So we're not talking about uh, skills and what have you that are acquired by a select few. In fact, you juggle unconsciously hundreds of competencies. And so we'll talk, that's why we're going to talk about that, because there is a there is a shared competency. But I even think you can go all the way back to the first century, and uh, you'll see some of the church fathers refer to it, that all these traditions that blossomed in all these directions in the world, Asia, Africa, Europe, they all shared this competency, which actually I, I call it, it becomes the wallpaper uh, in our lives. It's And wallpaper is such that you get so used to it, you hardly even notice it, but it, it, it sort of fills in the background for your life. And it's the way you want to adorn your home, and you think it adds richness to it, and it, and it does. But uh, uh, very few people have the, uh, very few Christians say have the same wallpaper, even close to the wallpaper, that the Christian tradition had for 1,500 years. So that's why we're going to talk about it, but we're going to start with this idea of unconscious competence. Do you want me to outline it, or did you want to run through it?
0: Well, I'll just, I mean, the... I heard it and then did a quick tick, uh, Googling of it. and so I, Which I'll just makes over... it absolutely right. That's, That's right. I found it on the internet, so we know it's true. There it so That's right. The, the brief overview from what I found is uh, it's, it's a term in psychology. There are uh, four stages of competence. Uh, and so the overview would be starting the foundation of unconscious incompetence, uh, which I like this little subnote here was that that would be more of like the wrong intuition. From there, you go to conscious incompetence would be a wrong analysis of whatever. Then you move to conscious competence, so you have the right analysis, but then the next step is that unconscious competence, which gets you to the right intuition, which I I immediately resonated with that. We talked in the past about uh, just interviewing strategies, trying to find candidates with good intuitions and whatnot, so I thought that was kind of a cool... uh, connection for me but yeah so we're going from unconsciously incompetent meaning I'm not even aware that things are off to conscious incompetence I'm I'm more aware than conscious competence and then unconscious competence
1: yes I'm sure our listeners right now are just writing all this down,
0: taking good notes. <laughs> Yikes! And then the price saying, "All right, let's get practical." <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, well, we'll help you out then. The
1: uh, so we are uh, becoming uh, we we are unconsciously incompetent in many many things. So here's an example of uh, if if an appliance breaks, at least if you were me, your first thing you become aware of is now, I am now conscious of being incompetent. Mm. But otherwise, I I didn't wake up this morning and and pray over every appliance in our home. (laughs) Why why do you think it broke? (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, a lot of people just be driving down the road and uh, a little steam comes out from underneath the hood or it could be a tire pops. And now you become consciously aware of, I'm incompetent. Um, I've, I don't have, I don't even know if, who, if this car has a, a a spare tire. I don't even know where that spare tire is. I don't even know how you get it out. That's what I mean by unconsciously incompetent. It doesn't mean we're not intelligent. It, it works like this. I think perhaps we've shared this before. If we, if we have, just bear with us, listeners. Uh, so the human brain... In this span of time, begin and one second, processes on average 14 million bits of information. That's a lot. And so, what the brain does is it bundles those 14 million bits into roughly between 100 and 200 bundles. And these bundles travel at lightning speed on neural highways, or what are called neural pathways. Super highways. you can be conscious of a handful, maybe four or five, perhaps as many as nine. But the rest of these are all unconscious. And when we're, because of that, most of the things that we assume are what are called unconscious or non-conscious. We're just, you cannot be aware of them. If you were aware of all 14 million bits of information that your brain processed in the last second, your head would explode, Pat. So you have to be, first of all, unconsciously competent and incompetent. And most people, therefore, are unconsciously competent in walking. Now, you could walk with me sometimes, and I might disprove that theory. <laughs> but you get the point. <laughs> you're, you're, most people are unconsciously competent in chewing with their mouth closed. And uh, so it's generally stunning if you're with an adult who doesn't. <laughs> so that's what we mean by So you're not thinking about it. Keep your mouth closed. But I can certainly remember my parents telling me that. <laughs> Uh, By the way, when I was like four or five, (laughs) not when I was 18. Uh, So these are things called unconsciously competent. The challenge in life change is when someone makes you conscious of something that you might be incompetent in that you ought not to be incompetent in. This was, perhaps, the great challenge when Jesus becomes incarnate on the earth. Because he's operating unconsciously, competent, out of a background that few people actually see, saw at that time, anymore. Hence, you often see Jesus saying, why are you blind? And by the way, you'll notice, often the case, the more religious someone is, and religion, by the way, in and of itself, is a very good thing. But excessively righteous people would come to Jesus and say, We're not blind, are we? Yes, you are. So if you want to be practical, as a lot of our friends always ask, we're in a very similar situation today, and this is what my friend and I were talking about in the Zoom we had last week that you were referring to. Much of American Christianity today is blind. There's just no other way to say it. It's not being harsh. You wouldn't want to go to a doctor if you were losing your sight, and the doctor avoid you, versus saying, you're going blind. We... Uh, So this is just a side note before we get back to these competencies. Fascinating that uh, I've used COVID to plunge deep into some authors that up to that time, I never had the time to pay enough attention to. So I was not unconsciously competent in what they were trying to convey. And Pat, I was thrilled that you know one of those authors is uh, Charles Taylor and I waded my way back through his book and um, you know one of the things is you'll note, early on he says in the world we're in today which I think it would be fair to say is like the church is in exile he is the problem isn't out there it's really in here and pastors can no longer be prescriptive he says they have to be suggestive and they have to be, Um, encouraging and they have to be um, really uh, up they have to be positive which by the way Flannery O'Connor said was the great heresy of our day Uh, the worship's got to be up everything's got to be up positive attaboy so no one can uh, stand before their congregation and say we might be blind in fact we are We're blind. Can't be prescriptive anymore. If you do, you'll keep your church very small. All right. Back to unconsciously incompetent. Uh, For me, by the way, unconsciously incompetent was this computer I'm in front of is a new one because the old one, started just going, just out. And then it would come back on, then a little red line would come out of a battery and the battery is full. And I'm going, oh my, what's happening here? <laughs> and I see, I I'm, I'm conscious of, I'm incompetent. This, this technology, I mean, I'm so old, Pat, that my first car, the Chevy two, I could change the oil and change the spark plugs I open the hoods of most of the cars of my friends. I can't even find them.
0: <laughs> They're a little different these days.
1: So that's what I mean by I'm a, I'm consciously incompetent now. I wasn't then. I remember gapping a spark plug, putting it in, things like that. Felt kind of cool. Can't do that anymore. Don't really want to do it anymore also, but so it doesn't bother me. But you can see when you're talking about an age where perhaps the Enlightenment has come to a close and and pretty much emptied our public spaces of God and is emptying our churches and is emptying the meaning out of the faith, that to become aware of that, the second step, that we are consciously incompetent is a really hard thing to admit. Mm. So most of us are unconsciously incompetent in a lot of things. I certainly am. And so when we were talking with our friend, um, he is in uh, finished med school. He's in a fellowship right now, two year program, out of Mayo Clinic. And the, all the, the reason that I asked him how long did, how long is his education, he said, "Let's see, it's about ten years." And uh, I said, "Why is that?" He said, "We got to learn this and this and this." And I said, no, it's actually because to become unconsciously competent so that you can attend to the important matters but not have to attend in terms of attention to, okay, I'm going to put my hand out there and the attending nurse is going to hand me a scalpel and I'm going to have to look at that scalpel to figure out which way is it facing? How does this thing work? Is it sharp? See, if you can only pay attention or attend to, let's just say on the average, four or five things that you pull out of the unconscious, if you have to pull them out to handle them, you are not unconsciously competent in them, and you can't be the physician that you ought to be and that he wants to be. These things have to be unconsciously competent, and it will take him ten years
0: yeah that was that was really helpful for me when I was listening to that part and then i I really liked what he said too, which was uh when they have these these meetings where they're talking through um like when do you operate he was saying a lot of a lot of what what we hear over and over again is not necessarily how to do an operation but the really discussion around when do you operate and just developing that intuition to know when we should take something to surgery and when we shouldn't and and that was another example i thought of of this being relevant to which is just to, ha- to 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 know to see it was almost like seeing things differently seeing when to operate and seeing when not to and that's where i started to click with a lot of uh a lot of clapham in general which is you can listen to these podcasts over and over again but you're not going to sort of have that just natural gut instinct to know, oh, that's, that's dominion or, or a great example of of the faith would be what the heck does my faith have to do with me typing on a computer every day? You know, and and having to attend to that and and quote unquote figure it out as we've talked about uh, versus just having this natural. I see the wallpaper, as you said, that was, that was a really powerful uh, example, understanding, a a physician is going, even a, a surgeon is going to see the world differently than I ever will.
1: That's right. That's right. And and again, this is this is difficult for a lot of people in terms of thinking. What do you mean? You, you have the uh, you have the room. You have the you have the. I mean, I see what they see. I don't get it. It's what you uh, attend to. What the attending physician calls attention to. A good little book on this, by the way, for listeners, uh, which you can buy it on online. I think it's only available online. I believe it's called Two Ways of Attending by Ian McGilchrist. But the reason we mention this is uh, McGilchrist wrote that uh, Thomas aquinas size book called The Master and His Emissary. I believe it's 7 to 900 pages long, something like that. So Pat and I readily agree, uh, acknowledge rather, aren't anybody gonna read that book? And uh, so what this is, I, for a while, at least, I think this is the first I hope in a series of books, it chunks out some, per, uh, some main idea out of it and puts it into a very accessible book. I read Two Ways of Attending in about 20 minutes. And what McGill-Crystal point out, who by the way did his research in neuroimaging uh, a good chunk of it at Johns Hopkins University, close by in Baltimore, is that we have two ways of attending to our world, both which are necessary, both which are important. The uh, right hemisphere tends to attend to the world, it's what's called broadly vigilant, and the left hemisphere tends to be narrowly focused. And both, again, are necessary. Uh, birds have an interesting, because they have a brain that works in the same way. So the left hemisphere, which is narrowly focused through the right eye, because we, like a bird brain, our brains are contralateral. Right hemisphere controls left. Left hemisphere controls the right. So the left hemisphere, which is narrowly focused, controls the right eye. And the right eye... Then is able to distinguish between gravel and seed when they're pecking at the ground. If you ever looked at a bird, you go, Oh, name do they miss the gravel? <laughs> and uh, it's because the left hemisphere is, is consciously competent so much that it becomes unconsciously competent in these very narrowly focused things, which are necessary. The left eye, controlled by the right brain, is what's called broadly vigilant. It is not looking for anything, it is receptive to what might be out there, but it is not in any way predictive, the right, the right eye is predictive, it's it can look and immediately go, okay, there's grain, there's grain, there's dirt, 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 peck away. The now what does that have to do with us? Well, what it has to do with us is if you ever notice birds have to turn their heads to look why where are their eyes situated
0: on the side
1: yes humans they're in the front we can attend to both simultaneously Hmm. it's my opinion part of being in the image of god but here's the downside If you're in, over the course of 500 years, a society which gives more weight to language over image, more weight to, quote, figuring things out than receptive, more weight to, we can go on and on, that's not important for this conversation, except you come into a society, an age that we're in, that biases the left hemisphere. Now, what does that mean? When you bias the left hemisphere, things become narrowly focused and binary. Narrowly focused, for example, the gospel is just redemption, uh, fallen redemption, versus the bigger Nicene, the wider Nicene Creed and the other creeds. Um, the cross becomes just justification by faith and atonement a notion that developed only 500 years ago concurrent with the enlightenment versus the cross is when we are betrothed to Christ, the bigger picture of the marital gospel, things like that. And so once you're in this narrow gospel, narrow world, this this goes well beyond American Christianity, but you end up with people, for example, um, Democrats are right and Republicans are wrong. Republicans are right and Democrats are wrong. Uh, Donald Trump was all good, and Joe Biden was all bad, things like that. You end up with this very binary world that literally blows apart. And I think that's where we are today. Now, that's a challenge, then, in a left hemisphere world, which is unconsciously incompetent in how you bring about human flourishing, Uh, what is the gospel, Uh, what does it mean to have friendships, why do we have genders, why do we have a body, why do we even exist, who is God, what is work, what is worship, what is ministry, all these things we become unconsciously incompetent in. And in a left hemisphere world, when we become conscious of that, listener alert, listener alert, this is an important point today. <laughs> the left hemisphere by default tends to raise the furrow the brow of suspicion. Who are you to tell me? Or that can't be right. Or, no way. Or, I don't know about that. The left hemisphere has been cultivated by what is often called the masters of suspicion, Freud, Darwin, Nietzsche. It's the idea that if someone comes along, and we'll just take the faith tradition, and I've felt this thousands of times as, as in being a Christian, you suggest him, for example, well, i tell you what you shared today, your take on the gospel is very individualistic and hardly comports with the ancient view. You're, the first response to the left hemisphere is, who are you? No way. And so what happens is, if you're unconsciously incompetent and you're left-brained, it's going to be very difficult to become consciously incompetent. Now, what does that have to do with the world we're in today? That is this. When our friend started med school, he was made aware of how, he's made conscious of how incompetent he is to be a doctor. But the difference is, when you're in medicine, or technology, or business, you're in what's called, quote, the real world. And so I don't think he folded his arms, crossed his legs, furrowed his brow, and said, no way, I know how to take out a kidney, thank you very much. But when you get into the unreal world, mostly religion, and someone suggests to you, That's hardly what Jesus preached. You get, there's no way. I know Jesus. I know exactly what the Bible says. Who are you? And so it becomes very difficult to enter some sort of religious ordering of your loves. Because with the Enlightenment, what we love too much is, I know what's true if i have a bible the holy spirit and a shaft of light from god to me i can understand all this stuff by the way do you know what augustine said on this matter if you can understand it it's not god
0: I mean it's hard to comprehend the the infinite and
1: yet we live in an age where many christians are supremely confident they understand this thing and by the way the giveaway is called a world view
0: <laughs> that just came up in a conversation uh, recently it's funny you say that but Mike, are you saying I cannot see the entire world from where I'm standing?
1: <laughs> well, the last time God spoke to me, that's what he told me. <laughs> of course not. And uh, I think we talked about this before, but it's because of we're finite. God is infinite. The degree of difference between finite and infinite is...
0: More than one. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's it's
1: the challenge. It's the challenge. For example, that someone has when they go,
0: I you know, I don't get it. How can
1: how can you be saved, but being being saved, and, and then you're you you will be saved. Yeah, and, and and what they don't understand is time is a moving picture of eternity. That's why we pray in the liturgical church. You pray the Lord's prayer every week because the like kingdom come. Our Father in the heavens, that's when time and spatiality, not space, but spatiality and material is created. And you want these things to happen in time, as they always happen in heaven, where there is no such thing as time. Now you try, quote, wrapping your mind around that, your head would explode. So if you can understand it, it's not God. Now that is—I mean, we live in an age today where Christians adore Augustine, especially his uh, Confessions. Lord, give me chastity, just not now. <laughs> and and I, I, Augustine is marvelous in so many ways, but I really don't think we understand what he was saying. I don't think we understand what the early church was saying. You know, for Irenaeus to say, all these churches share this kind of a common background. They're all unconsciously competent in a background that Charles Taylor would say is gone today. And if you try to help Christians today become consciously aware of their incompetence in this, you generally get a, no way which is exactly what the Enlightenment sought to engender in us over the course of 500 years. Which, by the way, there's an example of how long does it take to become consciously in, uh, unconsciously incompetent in something? Well, some things it takes on average about three years, med school, about 10 years, for a culture to be unconsciously competent in a narrow, truncated view of the gospel, that is bear, hardly bears any relationship to the ancient gospel. It's taken about five hundred years. Hmm.
0: Well, Mike, I think that's why you tend to draw individuals who probably have sensed that that conscious incompetence. Yeah, like I think the the thing I've often heard when people talk to you is like you put words to this this gut feeling I had or this this uh, sense I had that some, something's off. And so I think it's, it's probably uh, those people, people in that camp already sense some incompetence. And so when you start to explain the, the, the deeper uh, levels of, of incompetence there, like they're actually drawn to that because now you're explaining this, this feeling as opposed to trying to draw someone out who's totally unaware of being, being incompetent.
1: Yes, yeah, I I do. I get that a lot, and I can't. Um, I get it. And if for if for me, what I was, it is an unconscious competence that someone will talk, and I'll just see pictures, and that that depict how far away what they're saying is from older traditions. We call them pre enlightenment traditions, and um, so I'll just give I'll just give language to it. Um it, it it's nothing I conjure up I'm just saying. oh, I'm gonna say something profound here. Uh it's just hmm, well that's all, what we're making, blah 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 blah, whatever say. It. <clears throat> now what that what that tells you, Pat, is so true confessions, they say confession good for the soul, bad for the reputation. So I'm a, uh I've died by degrees. I have degrees from two seminaries two different seminaries. And the first seminary taught that uh, the church was built on apostles and prophets, and they were pretty much off the scene by AD 95. So no more, uh, no more prophets. Fast forward and I'm a pastor and church is booming numerically and the rest. And the further we go, the more miserable I am. And I have friends all unknown to one another in a short span of time say, you know, you're really a prophet. So what that tells me, first of all, is I'm not going to be invited back to that first seminary because prophets (laughs) don't exist. Uh, Second, I know they're right. Third, prophets do make people aware of where make them conscious of where they're incompetent. But that's no different than in the real world, as we like to say. We know there isn't such thing, but you get it. It's no different than in the real world, when steam pours out from under your hood, and your first impulse is... <laughs> I don't know what this is. I got to go AAA, which is, that's a good thing. Or, going to med school. Or going to university, simply because you want to teach business. I was watching a video yesterday. Uh, Our second son, who you went to college with, Pat. Um, They had their first commencement for National Honor Society for business students at this high school. We're so proud of our son and what he's developed there just in a short period of time. I think three years, two years he's been teaching high school. And uh, these these were all students who became conscious of their incompetence and they want to become unconsciously competent. So you don't get any knee-jerk reaction of I can figure this out. But once you get in the unreal world, especially religion, where religion is now simply a personal relationship with Jesus that I've individualized, that I figure out how, what is worship, uh, what is this, what is this, what is discipleship, what is the gospel, what is transformation, what is the church. And then we're looking for the right fit, which is absolutely bass backwards. It's what C.S. Lewis said is a great problem with the Enlightenment, is once you conjure up how this all is supposed to work, and you're doing it unconsciously, you're unconsciously incompetent because you swear as you read your Bible, and you have the Holy Spirit, and you know God, this is exactly what the Bible's saying. Then when a prophetic voice comes along, it really pricks you. And when a prophetic voice says... The point is not fitting into finding a church that fits. To paraphrase Lewis, the whole notion of life before the enlightenment was conforming to whatever would be a proper fit for all, not what fits you and what you're looking for in a church. I think that's part of what wore me out as a pastor. and I empathize with pastors, is that primarily you'll hear people say, well, we're looking for a small church. Or, we're looking for a church in this kind of worship. Or, we're looking for a church where we can build friendships. Or, we're looking for a church where we can... or, we're looking for a church where we're looking for a church. Versus saying, which I think you'd hear more prior to the enlightenment. I'm not saying any of these traditions were perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But it was the idea, as I said, how do do I conform myself to what is the best alignment with reality? Because the church was in the reality business. It's the same way that if you go to med school. You are aligning and standing on the shoulders of traditions before you. So if you go, scalpel schmauple, who needs that? I got a honey knife back home. I'm sure we can do fine with that. You probably won't graduate. But over here in the faith world, which is the unreal world, you can, we've come up with tens of thousands of traditions regarding the gospel, mostly based on a left hemisphere, narrowly focused, unconsciously incompetent, background, that the few things we are conscious of, if someone brings something else to their consciousness, that is, that you're incompetent, the knee-jerk reaction is, no way, or I don't know, I, (laughs) I don't know. The masters of suspicion, the only way out of this cycle, which if you read two ways of attending, by McGilchrist, it is only the left hemisphere that can cycle in and of itself. Now, picture that, Pat. Picture the left and left, left and right hemisphere. Picture a circle and this endlessly, endless cycling. The right hemisphere receptive. Imagine hands are open. Whatever comes. So for the bird pecking away, it might be a rustling in the bushes. All of a sudden a lot more activity in the right hemisphere. What was that? We don't know. You have to be receptive. you got to wait, pay attention. All the while, you can keep pecking because you can can tilt the head back. But you can't do both simultaneously. Humans can. But if you're in a left hemisphere world, that cycle goes only into the left hemisphere, or almost completely. And so, when you go to read the Bible, you know what the Bible says. You simply can try to put together an outline, come up with some bullet points and then you teach blah, 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 blah. You keep recycling everything you've known before. You might read something else you've never read before, but you basically just keep rereading and rereading and rereading. It's why after a while people drop out of church. They go, I haven't learned anything new. I mean, they are struggling to come up with something new, something interesting. Here's what happened in 605 BC. Oh, wow. What's that got to do with my life? I have no idea.
0: (laughs) Well, you see it also with, uh, with even people within the church of, you know, how often have you talked to someone and they're like, Oh, I was really reading the old Testament the other day. And it was just fascinating. You know, often it's yeah. D- you, Paul, no. just tell me what to do. New yeah. Testament.
1: So that's very left hemisphere. And in, in, in the left hemisphere, you just, you just keep recycling what you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, and, uh, you, and, so what happens is the only way out of that is you have to, now here, here's an example of left hemisphere. I just want to go deeper. want to go deeper. (laughs) If you're in the wrong cycle, a limited one, that's called a vortex. Hmm. You don't want to go deeper. You want to go wider. Hmm. Louise Collins said it well, faith is a certain widening of the imagination. And if you're going to widen the imagination, you have to involve the right hemisphere, which he and Miguel calls, get this, an agnostic, the right hemisphere is prophetic. Here's an agnostic who's closer to the gospel in many ways than Christians I know. Because he understands that unless, unless you have a prophetic voice, widening the activity of the human brain in your mind, you're not gonna begin to be, start to begin to be, first of all, you're consciously incompetent, then you start to become consciously competent. That's, then you can end up, a couple years out, becoming unconsciously competent in traditions and background for the Christian tradition that changed the world, the public world for 1500 years in marvelous ways, including the very thing that our friend, your friend of mine is going through right now. First of all, the modern university came out of our tradition and modern medicine. And now he's in med school so that he can one day be in the operating room and be unconsciously competent in the many myriad skills necessary to heal someone therefore properly attend be consciously aware of the four to five things that he must be in performing the operation And he learned to attend to those by the attending physicians who were sitting on the traditions of others who attended and then others who attended. And by sitting on these long traditions, he will one day be certified that he is unconsciously competent in the skills and knowledge necessary to do no harm the hippocratic oath we don't have christians to a sufficient number to change the world in ways we desire who are unconsciously competent in what is necessary to change the world I'm not the first to say that, I don't enjoy saying that, but it's, it's true. And the the necessary unlearning and learning, the necessity of going from being consciously incompetent to consciously competent in traditions before the Enlightenment so that you then become unconsciously competent in them is on average three years. Now by the way, since you ask, you didn't ask, but <laughs> so uh, Paul, Saul rather, comes to faith, rode to Emmaus. What happens next? Uh, well, he, he goes and gets his sight, and then what happens next?
0: Uh, doesn't he start preaching at that point?
1: Three years in Arabia.
0: What's going on in Arabia? I'm going to guess it's something related to consciously or unconsciously competent.
1: That's called strategic intuition. <laughs> You said it earlier, <clears throat> and you're right, intuition is marvelous, it's necessary. Untrained, it could be wildly off. Strategic intuition is the trained intuition. You're exactly right. So let's use this model, by the way, to think about So here's, here's a, it's all breeding threats. You now he's not on the road to Emmaus, what am I saying? Where is he going? i no good at Bible trivia anymore. But he's breeding threats and killing, persecuting the church. So is he, so he is unconsciously incompetent. Now by the way, here's, here's, a, uh, here's a great example of why one of the ruling paradigms today is called pietism. And the pietism is that if you just know Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit and you read the Bible, you're going to be changed. period. You're going to be transformed. And to a degree, that's obviously that's correct. That you're going to be changed in such a way you can change the world. That is not correct. Here's why. So, boom. Blinding light. Saul, blinded. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. You're persecuting my body. Saul believes. So now, Saul's all set. Go change the world, right? No. He is now conscious of his incompetence. Spends three years in Arabia. I think it's that time he becomes unconsciously competent. To such a degree, by the way, that he writes two-thirds of the New Testament, and the lion's share of what he writes is passing on to believers but they're unconsciously incompetent of. How about that? Two-thirds of the New Testament, at least probably the Bible, is written to correct problems in the church, are in the family of God. We often think, oh, the problem's out there in the world. More often than not, it's right in here. And why? Because we are unconsciously incompetent. So Jesus shows up, and it's three years later that Paul emerges. Now, let's keep playing this out. Sons of Judah, in the Babylonian exile, have great cultural capital in Jerusalem. So they immediately start to work for King Nebuchadnezzar and change, change that uh, situation. Right? Not quite. What happened?
0: They also First. spend three years learning the language and literature of Babylon.
1: That's right. Three years. Now Jesus shows up on the scene and he does woodworking and all these marvelous things. Can't become a rabbit you your thirties. So he, 30 years old, starts his public ministry, selects 12. How long were they with him? Three years. Majority of that time, we, we often think of them as knuckleheads. They are not knuckleheads. They're like us. They're unconsciously incompetent in the gospel, in the kingdom. And the way this whole thing works. They're not bad people. They're unconsciously incompetent. And Christ spends three years first making them conscious of their incompetence. Well, we only have some loaves of bread and fish here. (laughs) How can you do with that? But Jesus is unconsciously competent in this whole enchanted background this whole fascinating, the, the real world, saturated with spiritual beings, saturated with magic. For him, for him, walking along, I felt the power lead me. Someone touched me. This is it just normal. We call them miracles because we live in a world, now here's where we are unconsciously incompetent. Where we think of, there's such a thing as space. So we don't imagine, we're not unconscious. This is the important part here today. It's not that we're unconscious. We have to bring it to our attention, which calls for an attention that's going to be very difficult to sustain. We just unconsciously think we look out at the sky and there's pinpricks of light and planets and there's nothing between those. That's called space, a word that didn't exist before the Enlightenment. So we even today call the places where we worship space. And what we unconsciously are incompetent and denote to people is God's up there in heaven. He's not here. Because we have a lot of space. Traditions before the Enlightenment would be scratching their head when they hear us talk. They would find it unfathomable. They wouldn't understand what we were saying. It's what Taylor, Charles Taylor calls, it's the unthought. The unthought. We don't even think about it. And so today we're in a world where the unthought, where people just don't think about it, is uh, an explosion of people who feel, I am spiritual. But that thing called religion in the last 500 years does not appeal at all. If you really think that the whole battle is secular versus sacred, do you see how binary, which is left hemisphere, oh, it's science versus faith. It's the two books, the Bible and the book of nature. It's the all these binaries, black and white, Uh, this party good, that party bad, This, this whole thing has collapsed. It's collapsed. But if someone wanted to actually be a part of the church beyond this, that emerges out of this, I think it would take on average three years for them to be conscious aware consciously aware of their unconscious incompetence so that they are now consciously incompetent so that they are then consciously competent so they emerge as unconsciously competent it does not happen overnight god does not suspend the way the universe works just because we love him